My name is Dwight. I'm one of the pastors of Church 21. I am so, uh, so thrilled to be here with you this morning. Uh, glad that you were able to find parking. Some of you might have had your cars towed. That's okay. That's part of living downtown. No big deal. You'll find it four or five uh, blocks away with a, a donation to the city. You're fine. Um, so, so glad that you're here. And um, I, I'm going to pray again. And the, we're part of Acts 29. We're part of this network of, of churches. It's not just in Canada, but it's global. And really, we, what we want to do during our all-church gatherings is give you glimpses into things that we're connected to that not all of you have uh, privy or access to on a regular basis, but to allow you to know Murray's a good friend of mine. Murray leads uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba uh, with Acts 29, and what they're doing is uh, very inspiring, uh, really inspiring, and they're seeing a lot of people meet Jesus, and so I wanted you to meet to meet Murray. So let me pray, and uh, we will get into the book of Revelation chapter 2 and three this morning. Jesus, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are building your church. No snowstorm uh, can stand against that. No uh, secular agenda can stand against that. Um, No political opposition can stand against that. No persecution can stand against that. No isolation can stand against that. You are a God that transcends all of the blockades that we as humans try and put up to keep you out. You're able to get through. Thank you. Thank you that you got through to so many hearts. Thank you that what we're going to see this morning uh, in your word, but also through baptism, is representation that you are still alive, Jesus. And thank you that you are are moving. Thank you for the lives that have been changed uh, and and are represented here today. Help us to be faithful to the word and what you have to say. We're often uh, proud. We often think that we know better. I pray that we would submit and surrender to you this morning, what you have to say. So we love you and we need you for everything this morning. Amen. All right. So have you ever been assessed? Have you ever gone through an assessment? How many of you have gone through an assessment? Isn't it so fun having people examine your life? It's like the warm fuzzies inside of me. It's amazing. And then you get the results of the assessment and you think, huh, these aren't what I thought it was going to be, or I'm not who I thought I was. And so what do we do? We don't think that we're wrong. We think that it's probably the test or the person who administered the test. They must be the one that's wrong. What we're going to look at this morning, though, is is Jesus walking amongst his churches. He knows what's going on. You can't fake it with him. You can fake it with us. You can come here. You can pretend. You can go through all the motions. But yet the reality is, is that Jesus knows precisely what's going on in your heart. He knows exactly what's going on in this church. So there's no faking or hiding. And if you're playing church, I would plead with you to stop this morning. Today, January, what is it, 29th would be the last day that you play church. So what we're going to look at is seven letters from Jesus to seven churches, literal churches in Asia. And these seven churches, while they're literal, they're not the only churches in Asia or the world at this time. Church planning has been going on. We can see that in the book of Acts, which is a book in the Bible. Revelation, by the way, is the last book in the Bible. So if you're like, where is it? It's really, really easy to find. Revelation's at the end. But Jesus, as he goes to each one of these seven churches, yes, while they're literal, they're also representative. So we're not just reading someone's like old mail because we have nothing else to do. Rather, these churches are also symbolic for all of the churches who would exist. And we can learn a lot from the letter to these churches because it's not just to these churches, it's also to us. And so as we're walking through these seven letters today, there's several things that's that's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to read all of it. I won't be able to get into all the context. We're choosing to do a, a big overarching thing over these two chapters. But there's several things that are going to come up. Jesus is going to remind the church of who he is. Because it's easy to hear something, like I could say something this morning, and you might be thinking, who are you to say that to me? How dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? And that's, I think, actually where some of the churches are when Jesus is writing to them. They're not saying it to me, they're saying it to Jesus. Who do you think you are? And he's reminding them of who he actually is. The second thing is we're going to get into uh, some context, though we can't do it all, but as Jesus speaks of who he is, last week, if you heard Revelation 1, 9 to 20, or a few weeks ago when you heard that, um, you would have gotten into these titles of who Jesus is. And these reminders of who Jesus are aren't just random things that Jesus is saying, well, I guess I'm the son of God. I'll throw that out there. It was very pertinent to each situation that these seven churches were in. 
And then Jesus is going to do an assessment or an inventory of what's going well and what's not going well. And then at the end of each one of these letters, he's going to bring a consequence and a promise. Consequence and promise. And so that's what we're going to do. But there's three major categories that these churches, these seven churches fit into, and that's going to be the, the subject of the, of the sermon. So I won't give you those just yet, but three major categories, and we're going to apply each one. So we'll apply three different times throughout this morning. And as we're hearing about each one of the churches, um, what I want to call us to is to go the deepest level of application that we possibly can. So let me, let me put out some ways that we could apply the text. The easiest way is, as you're hearing these things, it is to be thinking about other churches or other people. Have you ever done that before? You hear a sermon, you're like, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. That church needs to hear this. That's the easiest thing. And while that might be true, that shouldn't be where our application ends. So the next level of application is for us as the church, Church 21. What's true about this text for us? And that's harder, isn't it? Because we like to think that everything about our church lines up perfectly, that we're just nailing it in every way, shape, or form. And that's just not true, right? As a church planter, uh, my wife and I came here, planted a ch the church. Brian and Severine uh, quickly, quickly joined. And you think on paper, we're going to have a perfect church. And then people join. But then you realize once they join that you were actually the problem. I'm the problem, it's me, right? Some great theologian said that recently. Um, we can apply it within Church 21, but the hardest level of application is you. Applying it individually to you. What's going on? What's true and what's off in my life? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to apply it to Church 21 and to us. Because it's really important that we grasp reality in, in two spheres at least. Reality of who I am, who we are as individuals, and the reality of who Christ is. And I think it's way more important that we understand who Christ is because when we understand who he is, we can define ourselves under him. All right? We're all with you, Dwight. Okay, awesome. Great. These are, these are self-conversations I have as I'm preaching. I'm like, I'm sure they're all with me. I'm just going to keep going. All right, so first category of churches, I would title them as faithful Faithful and loyal churches. So let me read these two churches to you. Um, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then I'm gonna jump to chapter three, verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patience and endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says too. The churches. As Jesus writes these letters, there's a few things to point out. There's nothing negative that Jesus is saying is going on in these churches. There's encouragement, but they're very difficult circumstances that these two churches are living in. So for Smyrna, they're, the, the people of the church, they would have been banished from trading or, or making money because they had submitted to Jesus. They didn't worship Caesar, so they were banished from being part of the trade guilds, which means that their economic reality would have been dirt poor. They would have had nothing. They had chosen Jesus over everything else, which cut them off 
It's an extreme poverty. Some of them were being put in prison. They were being slandered. So the Jews at the time would go and tell the Roman authorities on these Christians and that this anti-Caesar cult was existing, which means that they would come in and they would put these people to death. This is their reality. Tribulation means crushing burden. You ever feel like you have the, the world on your shoulders and you're being crushed by it? This is their life all the time, every day. They wake up wondering, when do I lose my head? The church in Philadelphia, persecution was already happening and rampant with them. And it says, Jesus says, I know you have little power. You have little power. This means ineffective witness or change, that they're telling people about who Jesus is, but instead of having people turn to Jesus, they're dying instead. So hard to live in Smyrna, to live in Philadelphia, so hard. And do you know what is so encouraging to them? Is as Jesus speaks words of life of who he is to them. Hey, I was dead, but I'm alive. This is the most life-giving statement you'll ever hear. I was dead, but I'm alive. How many of you have met people like that? Okay, good. Yeah, I met a resurrected person last week. Big deal. That doesn't happen. And yet for people who are about to die, to know that death doesn't win in the end is good news. And so Jesus says, I get you. I understand you. I know what you're going to walk through. I know the temptation to give up. Remember, Jesus was the one sweating drops of blood in agony in the Garden of the Gethsemane before walking to the cross voluntarily. He understands what they're going through. But Jesus is saying, I was dead and I'm alive. Death won't win. There's a hope that's far greater than that. And not only that, but Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, and listen, who opens and no one will shut. That Jesus has the key to open and to open in such a way that no one can close what he has opened. And so Jesus is saying to these people who are losing everything, nobody can shut you out from the riches that are mine. No one can close the door or block you from engaging with me that this is really good news for them. Let me read you a quote from my friend Adam Ramsey in his, in his new book. He says, to the degree, to the degree that Jesus is secure in the grip of the Father, every single Christian is secure in the grip of the Son. The only way, this is really staggering, so pay attention. The only way that Christ's people will ever perish is if Christ himself were to perish with them. Jesus will be removed from his throne in heaven before any of his children are removed from his saving embrace. You can't lose. You can't lose. Jesus is saying, I won't leave you. And as your head is put down, I will look you in the eyes and say, I'm going to be with you through death and bring you into life. Jesus makes a promise that suffering, he doesn't say suffering is not going to happen, but he says suffering is going to be temporary. It's going to be temporary. And he says, you will endure. You can endure. And their call is to witness to the world about who Jesus is unto death. And Jesus says, I'll give you the crown of life. So how do we apply that? How do we apply that? Well, there's persecution going on all around the world right now. People are quietly lining up to get into houses and staggering and using codes and places to know where they're meeting. That's a real thing for the church and other places around the world right now. That there are many, many brothers and sisters today who will lose their life because of Christ. So it doesn't perfectly apply here. But here we feel like we have little power, don't we? There's not many Christians in Montreal. There's not many Christians in Quebec. There's not many Christians in Canada. We are proud of our secularism and how fast we're secularizing. We're proud of that. We feel like we have little power. But the news is we have the Spirit of God. And we have the one who is dead and is alive forever more 
with us. And the reality is, is that as we're told this narrative constantly that there's no need for the church, Jesus is irrelevant, he moved out with the quiet revolution, we're going to baptize four people that say something different. That, that the gates of hell aren't winning and that the agenda of this world, which the book of Revelation just calls Babylon, it doesn't prevail. That Jesus does. People are meeting Jesus and Jesus is not fretting on the throne. He's alive, active, and fully in control on January 29th, 2023. He can't be shut out from the city. And in fact, he is the resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus comes to um, his friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days at that time. And Jesus comes and he says something to Lazarus' sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I bring resurrection, I bring life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he walks into the death of Lazarus and calls Lazarus out. And if that type of hope, four-day death hope, is alive in the person of Jesus, then there's lots of hope for our city. So the application is, is your heart faithful though? Is your heart faithful? Do you want Jesus more than you want the stuff, the Babylon, and even the kingdom of God can give you? Do you want him more than anything else? I pray that for my kids and for this church all the time, that we would want Jesus more than anything else that this world could offer. And would we pray for revival? I'm gonna stop and pray now. Jesus, would you bring revival to this church? This church is yours. Would you awaken our hearts and bring revival this morning? Allow for new affections to replace complacency. We've, we probably have not thought about ex experiencing a tribulation where we lose our lives. But this morning, would we say, Jesus, I'm willing. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Would you bring revival to your church right now? Amen. The second category. So we have the faithful. The second category is there's some faithful and some compromised. And I'm not gonna read all of these, okay? Hopefully this is giving you a, a desire to study further, okay? We can't get through all of this stuff in one go. But this church is faithful or these churches are faithful and compromised at the same time. And these would be the churches of Pergamum, Theatira, and Sardis in chapter two, verse 12 to chapter three, verse six. And there's a trajectory that moves from bad to worse, bad to worse. And so I'm gonna, pull out snippets from these three churches, okay? So what was good? What was good that Jesus looks at these churches and says, yes, good, this is happening. In Pergamum, this was the, the, the cult center. That's not the good thing, okay? I'll get to the good thing in a second. But it was a cult center, and, and Jesus says that Satan's throne is there. There's a temple to, to Zeus in this city. But Jesus says in chapter two, verse 13, listen to what he says to this church. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You didn't deny. I know where you live, Satan's throne is there, but you didn't deny and that's good. And here's the reality, a witnessing church will always be a persecuted church. You wanna shut off persecution? Stop talking to people about Jesus. That'll shut it off. Now, you might be spiritually persecuted, but a witnessing church will always be a persecuted church. What was going on in Theatira that was good? Well, in chapter two, verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. They're growing in good works, it's incredible. And then we get to Sardis, Jesus says, this, in chapter three, verse one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. We think that's good, but it's not, just a second. And then in verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are not, or for they are worthy. So you have people who haven't pooped their pants basically is what Jesus is saying. We have kids in the room, right? You gotta put that in there somewhere. But it's like, is that good? You know, if we're like evaluating our church, like, well, no one pooped themselves today. Like, awesome, amazing, right? What is, what is Jesus talking about? How is this good? Well, we'll get to that in a second. These are the good things. Well, what's, what's the bad things? Where, where are they compromising? In Theatira, 
um, or in Pergamum, listen to chapter two, verse, verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, so this is Old Testament. You'd have to know Old Testament story. We're not gonna get into that today. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The rebuke to this church and the other two churches that even though you've been faithful in these things, you've compromised. You're tainted. There's something wrong with the church. You're starting to look more like Babylon, more like this world in the area of your worship, your, your sex, and your idols, the things that you actually worship. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't have any idols. There's no like statues in my house. I don't, this is irrelevant to me. Listen to what Tim Keller says about idols. An idol is anything. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so Pergamum, we see that they're, they have idols and that there's sex involved, okay? Sex like this world, not like God designed it to be. All right, what's going on in Theatira in verse 20? I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. So in Pergamum, you have some in the church who are doing these things. Now in Theatira, you're actually recruiting people to lead the church who are promoting these things openly and actively. Like we like some of the things that Jesus says, but we're gonna pull a Thomas Jefferson and cut out other things and remove them altogether. We're gonna make our own Bible. So Jezebel isn't literal Jezebel, like that's her name teaching probably, but it's representative of an Old Testament figure who led the people of God astray and to worship all sorts of other gods. And so Jesus is saying, Pergamum, you have issues because some in the church are doing this. Theatira, the person up at front, is leading the church in this. And somehow you think that's okay. You think that's okay. And then Sardis. I know your works, chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, which seems like good news. But it says, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You think you're alive. You think everything is fine. Everything looks good on paper, but inside you're dead. Inside you're dead. The city is applauding the things you're doing. Like, yeah, we're the church, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're doing such great things, but you're not about Jesus, you're about you. That's what was going on in this church. They wanted to have a good reputation with, with the city. I know how we could have a really good reputation with this city right now. We can affirm everything that they believe. We can say our new name is Church of Montreal. The Montreal bylaws is our statement of faith and we wanna get on board and we would be applauded. And Jesus would say, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Oh, you feed people? Good for you. You have dead hearts. Oh, you do nice things? That's wonderful. You used to do those, remember? Jesus says, but you're dead. You're not really my people. You think you're my people. You say you're my people, but you're not my people. Wake up. Death is saturating that church. You see, the thought in these three churches is that we're going to reach people. We're going to reach more people by being just like them. If we're more like them, if, if, if we're more like Babylon, if we're more like our, our city, then we'll reach people. We'll be, we'll be cool and we'll be relevant. And we'll be, it'll be awesome. I mean, didn't Paul say something like that? That I'm, I'm like them in every way, whatever, like, that's not it. That's not it. We've been rescued from Babylon to go and be witnesses of a kingdom that has no end. We've been rescued out of, of a kingdom where we're constantly struggling to find approval and comfort and control and power. And we're frustrated and we feel like we can't make headway in the city and we're tired of being pushed aside. And some, it's so easy to want to compromise and to say, okay, we'll just give in on these things. We'll keep these parts of the Bible. We'll keep these parts of statement of faith, but these parts will invite other people in. 
It will invite other people and it'll attract people. But that's not it. That's just not it. Jesus, look at what Jesus says about himself to these churches. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of God and fire. That alludes to Daniel, which is a book in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3, where these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a big golden statue to the, to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And if everyone would just bow to Nebuchadnezzar, everything will go fine. The problem is these three dudes didn't bow. And he brought them into him and he said, I'll give you another shot. If you bow to my statue, I won't kill you. But if you, if, if you don't bow, I'm going to put you in that furnace over there. And they're like, okay, that's fine. We're not going to bow down to you. We're only going to bow down to living God. He could rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. So he gets super mad. He cranks up the fire even hotter. The people who go to put these three guys in the fire end up dying. But the three guys, as they're in the furnace, should be dead. Nebuchadnezzar sends someone to look in, and there's a fourth person now that's in this furnace with them. And he said, it's one like a son of man or one like a son of God is in there. And so as Jesus is saying to these people who are compromising, he said, don't you know the, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you know that I'm with the people in, in the harshest places? Don't you know that I'm not going to bail out on you? I was put in the furnace for anti-idolatry people, and I was with them, and I'll be with you as well. And Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits. And Jesus is saying, I put my spirit onto you that you have the power of resurrection moving in you. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to figure out a growth strategy for the church. My resurrection was, is doing a pretty good job at that. You don't need to figure this out on your own. You don't need to whiteboard it out. You have the spirit. The last thing he says, the words of him in chapter 2, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that's probably the scariest one. The one who has the, the two-edged sword. We like images of baby Jesus. We like images of soft and gentle. And Jesus was gentle and he is gentle. If you walk with Jesus, you know that he's gentle. But he wants your heart and he's ferocious about it. And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 16. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. A war against the people inside of the church with the sword of my mouth. In chapter 2, verse 21 and 23, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know what hour I come against you. Jesus is very upfront about what he's going to do. That's really kind of him. He could have just hung back. And say, well, if they don't get it right, I'm just going to come and smote them or smite them or whatever you do. But instead, he gives them another opportunity. Remember who I am. Remember that you turned to me. Remember, remember how we engaged with one another. Remember what you gave up to follow me. Remember. Most of the Christian life is remembering who he is and what he's done for us. And so how do we apply this? Well, there's really a strong temptation in our modern day, to have, and, and then as well, but to have a Build-A-Bear theology. How many of you have done Build-A-Bear before? Great. I don't know if it's still going or not. Um, but the whole idea of Build-A-Bear is you go in as a child, hopefully a child, right? Maybe, no, no, no judgment, right? Um, but you go in as a child, and you pick out the type of bear you want, and you put a heart, and you put like whatever, and you literally build this thing. And it can look crazy if you want it to look crazy. It can be made up of all kinds of parts. And that's what is so easy to do with our theology is we're not against Jesus per se. We just want to build Jesus the way we want to build him. 
And so the compromised beliefs, especially in our day, is the Bible. Is the Bible actually really relevant for us? Is the Bible actually from God or is it just a historical document that we can refer to? Or is it even a historical document we can refer to anymore? That's been under attack for a really long time. But also the cross. Did Jesus actually die on the cross? Did he have to die on the cross? Are you sure he died? Are you sure that he was really dead? Are you sure that God wanted him to go there? Are you sure that he wasn't just an example? Right? All of these questions come up around the cross. Resurrection. Are you sure this wasn't a spiritual resurrection? You're, you're really sure that a living person got up out of the grave? Are you serious? Come on, like we're very post-postmodern or whatever we are. Like we're not so silly to believe that anymore. The resurrection is under attack, especially at our theology schools in our city. No literal resurrection happening there. Hell, hell can't be real. Hell's not a real place. Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about a stinky fire. No place like that, all right? Image, your, your image, you're, you're beautiful as you are. You don't need a God to be made in the image of. There's no God. Sex, do whatever you want with your sex. Do whatever you want with your bodies. You don't want to live anymore? That's fine. You want to live longer? That's fine. You want to live with these people? That's fine. Like, doesn't matter anymore. Your body's yours. Do whatever you want with it. That's under attack. And your life, your life, do whatever you want with your life. And unfortunately, that makes it into the church as well. Because we just want to keep church people happy because we need to keep the heat on. We need to keep the electricity on. And I would say before we compromise that way, let's burn the buildings down. Not literally because this isn't our building, okay? We don't want to do that, right? No one take out your lighter. But if there's something in the way that we need to compromise so that we can keep a version of church that we're holding on to and unwilling to go where the Spirit wants us to go now, then we need to get rid of these things. Because we aren't the authors. We're witnesses. You're a witness. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. We're witnesses. And there's no good but compromised representation of the church in our world. So if that's you, if that's a heart, oh, man, we need to submit to him. I don't think that's our church. I don't think that's where we are across the board as a church. But we've been tempted to go that way several times. And I, can, I could name those times and the things that have come up, those moments of compromise. We said, no, we're not going that place. And people have left over that. Don't play church. The call is to remember and repent. The third category, the last category so we have the faithful church, we have the faithful but compromised church, and the last category is the danger of losing their identity category. Danger of losing their identity. And these are the two churches that David read for us before, Ephesus and Laodicea. So I'm not going to read those again, but I would say these are the most real ones to our church. Kind of the worst category is the one that's most real for us. Like, that's not good news. Well, we'll get to it, okay? Okay. Here's what's going on in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was Paul's mission. It was central to Paul's mission. It's actually where John um, eventually moved to and, and hung out in, in Ephesus. And it was really crucial to the movement of God in Asia. So listen to what Jesus says to the church in, in chapter two, verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. It's like, man, this sounds really good. Church has its theology straight. The church is really clean. It's running well. It's unlike the second category. It's actually getting rid of people who are compromising, but there's a problem. In verse four, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Repent is a turning. I'm going this way and now I'm going this way. It's a complete turnaround. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And the lampstand is not like a lampstand on that side. Jesus is like, I'm taking it out of the building. It's that you're no longer my church. I'm removing that. See, what was going on is that they loved Jesus. They really did. They loved him, 
but not what he loves or what they're meant to be. That the church in Ephesus, the church, Church 21, we're meant to be witnesses. And they had redefined the relationship. They began knowing Jesus, telling people about Jesus, but they redefined the relationship around what they want. Around what they want. No longer was this church for the outsider or for the witness. The, the, the danger for them was that they would become like a Pharisee. Do you know what a Pharisee is? It's a character. They were characters in the Old Testament and New Testament. And they were the, the people who knew a lot of theology, knew a lot about God, were the religious leaders, knew their Bibles really well, but Jesus said, there's no life in you. There's nothing going on inside of you. And so they had the danger of having everything just look really, really good, having really good theology. If you know the Gospel Coalition, like Gospel Coalition probably would have checked their, their theology. It would have been amazing. But yet they were no longer witnesses. They weren't a lampstand. They weren't being the light of the world anymore. And so the call that Jesus gives to them is remember, repent, and do what you used to do. Remember how incredible it was when you became a follower of me and, and my desires burned in you and all you wanted to do was to, to read scripture and to talk to people about who, who I am. Remember that. Rekindle the love that you had for this world. We're not rescued out of Babylon, so we hate Babylon. We're rescued out and we love Babylon the same way that Jesus loved us when we were enemies of him. Jesus didn't give his life so that we could have awesome programs. And it's so easy to make the church about us, isn't it? It's so easy to rotate the church around our youth ministry, your men's ministry, your women's ministry, your church planting, and, and be all about us and our things. When Jesus said, I rescued you to be witnesses. And if you're not going to be witnesses, I'll remove the lampstand. I didn't rescue you so you'd play church. I didn't rescue you so you'd have something to do on Sunday mornings. I know how boring and dull your lives are. I rescued you so that you could be my resurrection people in a dead city speaking about resurrection hope into dead lives so that they might experience resurrection. That's why I put you there. Laodicea, Jesus says this. This is the last church. Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Well, that's really important because Jesus is coming to witness to this church, but the witness startles them. If Jesus writes a letter to you, you're like, oh, nice. I wonder what he's going to say. You know, I really liked our quiet time yesterday morning. It was awesome. I like speaking to you through the psalm, the one the one psalm you read or the one verse you read, that was really neat. You know, love Jesus. His letter startles them. It was quite shocking. Listen to verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. And Jesus isn't saying that cold is a, a not yet Christian and hot is a really passionate Christian. He's saying like, I wish you were something. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you. That's a really nice translation. It's like vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Vomit you out of my mouth. They had great spiritual complacency. Um, Laodicea was a city with a motto that we need nothing. We need nothing. In Laodicea, they had everything that they needed. They had the banks, they had the medical schools, they had the, the, the clothing, right? All the designers were living in Laodicea. Their economy was booming. The index funds was on the up and up. Bitcoin, even though it's struggling here, it's like on the up and up there, like everything is going well. But the thing that Jesus is saying is, I, I'm just a minute part of your life, I'm not all. No longer my Lord of your life. I'm just something you do in your spare time. And the evaluation that he gives in verse 17, he says, for you say, I, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Is that the evaluation of your life too? When you're asked to self-evaluate, you're like, I think things are going pretty well. I think I got things on lockdown. Jesus and me, we're tight. 
but what's Jesus's evaluation of, of your life? And this isn't meant to be, you know, morbidly introspective, like, oh yeah, I must be really bad. That's not why I'm saying that. But is Jesus's evaluation of your life what your evaluation of your life is? That's what humility actually is, is a proper assessment of our understanding, not being like, no, 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 I'm nothing, I'm not good. That's not humility. Humility is a correct assessment of who we are, but they're missing each other. Laodicea and Jesus are missing each other in their evaluations. And so Jesus uses this hot, cold illustration and metaphor to speak to the hearts of the people that were living in that city. Because outside the city, there were hot springs that people would go and they thought that healing could happen out there. And then there were also, there was cold water in, in another place outside of the city. And they tried to bring the cold water into the city through a pipe. But when that water got into the city, it was lukewarm and it was worthless and actually dangerous. And Jesus is saying, your hearts are like your water that no one wants to drink. You're a real problem for your city. Jesus speaking about his one church in the city says, you're a real problem for your city. You're pointless and dangerous. You're irrelevant to me and irrelevant to the city. You're not witnessing or giving healing. You're not bringing refreshment to the city at all. And it could be for a whole host of reasons that we can't get into right now. But what does Jesus do? You expect Jesus to come down really hard on these people. Like, I'm bringing the elbows all day long. Like, I don't know. But I expect Jesus to be ferocious. And listen to what he does with this church. In verse 18, I counsel you. Tone is important. This is what I think the tone is. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't bring elbows, he pleads with them almost to the point of like groveling. Like, would you please see me for who I am? Would you please experience my love afresh? Would you please open the door to me and let me in? Would you please let me renew you? Would you please let me make you my resurrection people in the city? Would you please let me give you a resurrection injection? Would you please take more of me? Because I'm what you need. So how do we apply these two churches? Well, what stops us from being witnesses? What stops us from being witnesses? Is it your theological programs that you're doing? Because Jesus is not putting these two things against the other. Well, I really need to go to theology class, so I can't, I can't be a witness here. That's not what Jesus is doing. But is it that your theology stops you from witnessing? If that is it, repent today. Say, Jesus, I don't want that. I'm not saying ditch theology. That's not what we're doing. But I don't want that to be the thing in the way. What stops us from being witnesses? We can easily fall into the place where we've, we believe that our, our neighbors and coworkers and friends don't need him. Because they, they have better houses than we do. They drive nicer cars or they have a car or they... They sit on a seat in the subway, you know, instead of standing like I do all the time, right? Like, they don't need Jesus. They, they seem like they have everything together. There's no need in our city. So I don't need to witness to them. If that's you, repent, because that's not true. Is it the programs that we're doing as a church? If the programs that we're doing are stopping you from be a being a witness, please make an appointment to meet with me. Because I want to stop those programs or I want to discuss what's going on in life that we're not able to be witnesses and do those things. But so often what stops us from being witnesses is me. Me, myself, and I. My needs. I need self-care. I need alone time. I need me time. You know what? Those things are great. Silence and solitude is, is awesome. But I see Jesus getting me time and my time and alone time and do you know what he does? He gets up earlier than everyone else, 
or he stays up later than everyone else. He doesn't cut into the time where he can serve and minister and care and witness. He sacrifices certain things so that he can be with his father. In the same way, we want to think about what, what is it in my life that needs to change so that I can be a witness? Because it's not a secondary thing. It's not an added on thing. This is a whole book of Revelation. Is Jesus starting it by speaking to his churches about being witnesses because I'm coming soon. And because I'm coming soon, I want you to be ready. And to be ready, I want you to make everyone else ready too. And don't be weird and write lots of novels about how strange it'll be, you know, or make charts with dragons or those things. I want for you to go and talk and show people that this is real. You're clothed with Christ. You're empowered to enjoy and express his glory. Jesus is saying to his church, you're really free. You're really free. All right, so how do you, how do you respond? How do you need to respond today? Not in condemnation. What's going on in your mind right now, if you're like, man, I'm a piece of garbage. I don't witness. I don't do these things. I am such a horrible follower of Jesus. That's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God would say, let me remind you, remember who Jesus actually is. Remember how loved you are. And you weren't loved by Jesus because you witnessed to so many people. You were loved when you were dead. So remember how you were loved by him. Remember the love that he had for you. And now go and witness that. See, Jesus is here today and he wants you. He's, he's knocking at your heart again. But we must see ourselves correctly. We must let him examine us and terminate traces of Babylon that still exist in our hearts. You see, as a church, we want to forge followers of Jesus. We don't want to just get attenders or participants, but we want to really forge followers, which means that we're going to mature together. One of the things that Brian is going to talk about at the end uh, is the spiritual inventory that, that we've been doing as a church actually for years, and we revamped it a little bit post-COVID. You know, uh, PC and BC, there are new ways we're going to talk about time, I'm, I'm sure of it, you know, before COVID, post-COVID, something like that. Um, anyway, spiritual inventory. The whole idea behind this is not to get you uh, to take some sort of weird test. The spiritual inventory is actually a shepherding tool that helps us know where you're at in a way that would take us probably 20 meals or dinners to actually get all the answers to these questions in, in a very shepherdy, nice way. So the spiritual inventory that we're going we're gonna to talk about at the very end uh, allows for you to, to tell us as a church what's going on in your heart, in your lives, and then we get to come alongside you, make a discipleship plan for the next year. Hey, here's some areas that you could grow in. Here's where our whole church needs to grow in. I think there's been about 20 people who have taken it so far, and there's one very distinct thing that I'm like, wow, our church really needs to grow in that. Let's make sure we focus on that for the rest of this year. But we, we want to take our jobs as pastors very seriously, that we sit under Jesus we're going to give an account for his people and how we stewarded and shepherded and shaped them. And that's, that's kind of scary. What a privilege, but that's kind of scary. And I want to be about the task of making sure that the 350 to 400 people who are part of Church 21 at this moment are growing in maturity, that we want to be walking alongside you, not just with a program, but with actually things that I think Jesus wants to grow you in this area. Let us help you in this. So Brian will share that at the end. But I want to end with, with this, that we exist to witness him personally, that we go and we witness about him, the one who is dead and is now alive, that we go as a church to witness him, and we, we go to the world to witness him. So I'm going uh, to invite uh, Pierce up now to, to just share uh, briefly. Pierce is one of the guys who's going to get uh, baptized today. Pierce is probably somewhere in the room. Um, maybe I'll be, there you are, Pierce. Great. Um, yes. So I'm going to have uh, Pierce share his story, and then, uh, and then we'll move into the rest of our time of response. Okay. Is this working? Should work. Hello? 
For the past year, God has been flipping my entire life around. My worldview of circumstances, feelings, relations, and the cross has changed for the better thanks to him. With the help of people around me and God working through them, he's taught and revealed his wonders of mercy, grace, love, and thanksgiving to me so I can mm. apply it to my life. I know Jesus has always been calling to me and finally answered him with acceptance for a new beginning after years of ignorance. I still have much to learn, but I know right now I want to publicly declare my faith to him. Hmm. So we're going to respond in a few different ways today. Um, one, we're going to celebrate that God is still bringing spiritually dead people to life, right? That's exciting. Don't, don't miss that. Every, every gathering that we do all together, we're getting to see that, right? Don't miss that. Don't just see it as something extra. Like, this is incredible. We couldn't do this on our own. So we're going to do baptism. Secondly, I'd invite you to give. Um, you have to get dressed to get baptized, don't you? All right, go get dressed, man. You're sent, Pierce. You can take that and give it to David. Um, so we, we get to give. We want to see more churches planted in our city. We want to see uh, more people meet Jesus in our city. And that's going to take uh, more resources and more, more finances because that's just a reality. And so we have the opportunity as the people of Church 21 to give. If you're visiting with us, if you're not yet to follow Jesus, uh, we don't want your money. That's not the thing. But if you're part of our family, um, you can give to church21.ca slash give or in the black box in the back. Um, I want to invite you to get connected today as well. Brian already mentioned out, filling out a card, but we want to know you. We really want to know you, and we want you to know people within the church, and that little card is the best way. I'm holding up an imaginary card like Brian did. Um, the last thing is we're going we're gonna to sing, and we're going to sing as witnesses of God, and we're going to witness to one another by singing out and declaring truths. And as we move into this time of worship, people are going to come up, and they are going to be baptized. So let me pray. Why don't you stand? And we will, we will continue worshiping him. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you are a great God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are moving in this city. Thank you that you are at work in everything. Thank you. Thank you that you are um, rescuing people. Thank you that you give us hearts that, that can get in line with, with your will and your desires. I pray that we would be the witnesses in this city. I pray that you would ferociously go after our hearts and remove any traces of Babylon that still exists there that stop us from being your witnesses. I pray that thousands upon thousands of people would become followers of you and that this morning, this morning you would speak to us about being the witnesses and we wouldn't look for someone else to do it, but that you would do that through us. We love you, Jesus, and we need you for everything. Amen.